0: Welcome back to Screen People. Um, this is going to be a kind of a weird episode. That Granted, we've only done like four episodes, so it's funny that we're going to be weird now. But we're going to be weird now. I actually recorded this episode a few weeks ago. So for the three people who are following this podcast who have been wondering why we haven't posted for a month, it's because I did actually record an episode and worked really hard for hours editing it trying to make it perfect and then right at the last minute the night i was going to post it something happened and all the files got corrupted and the whole thing got wiped clean from my hard drive so this is going to be the scream people redo episode craig is our wonderful guest today who has been so kind he spent an hour and a half with me last time and now he's willing to do it again um because i screwed up and he's patient Welcome, Craig, for the second time. Let's not pretend that this isn't the second time you've been on the podcast. To help us understand a little bit about you, give us a brief intro. Who is Craig? Just give us uh, the two-minute version of your life. Hello,
1: screen people. Um, geez, so... I went to college like all good people are supposed to do and it wasn't really working out for me. So I dropped out with dreams of um, buying the restaurant that I worked at when I was not going to college because the people came to me one day and were like, hey, you want to buy this restaurant? And I said, sure, that sounds like a great idea when I was like 19 or 20 years old. So I did not become a restaurant owner because uh, me and a friend ended up actually pursuing that for quite a while. The idea um, went as far as going to a bank and trying to pursue a loan where upon a very nice bank lady said, look, I can give you the money, but this is just a bad business move and could ruin your life. So don't do this. So I did not become a restaurant owner. Moving on from that, I took the skills that I had picked up throughout high school and college and started working in, uh, graphic design. Did that for a number of years. And I just kind of took those skills throughout, uh, those years and kind of built more, a bigger skill set and kind of parlayed my way into a semi-professional artist. Um, in a nutshell, that's, that's pretty quick, but I don't want to bore you with all the details. You can ask pointed
0: questions if you want. <laughs> Let me see. Let me see. Think about pointed questions to ask you. No. So Craig is a brilliant artist. When I met him, he was doing video and then he moved on to visual art and even some animation. And then he started creating everything under the sun from figures to toys to paintings. And I'm, I'm a big fan. I'm a fanboy of Craig. But here's what what I was bringing up was the fact that we have known each other for at least 10 years and I had no idea we were the same damn age because we do share a very similar timeline on the media that we were exposed to. Now, Craig, just for argument's sake, where were you raised? I was...
1: Born in the east side of Cleveland, Ohio. Um, Lived there temporarily, but pretty much grew up um, in various mountain towns throughout uh, Appalachia, West Virginia, North Carolina, and finally settling in uh, a small town in Virginia
0: where I was pretty much grew up there. See, I was raised on an island in the Caribbean, a little island called Puerto Rico. Even though we have such a different version of our childhood our media was actually quite similar. And I just love that. I love that because it connects us. And it's the whole point of this podcast, which is how media can connect people. It's for that dissertation that I will never write. (laughs) Now, I love to ask people, when you think about childhood, what is the first thing that comes to mind? And I'm constantly, even though I know this is episode five, so I guess four other times, I'm constantly blown away by the response. Please tell us, why would you answer poltergeist? in reference to your childhood?
1: Um, it made a very distinct impression on me because... I saw it at much too young an age, not on purpose. Um, I have an older brother who is 10 years older than I am, so he probably would have been about 14 or 15 when he started watching it. Of course, there was nothing else to do because, you know, it was the uh, early 80s. There were no iPads or phones or anything like that, and I couldn't really read at the time. So, you know, we watched The Glowing Box. So he turned that on, and it, yeah, it ruined me for years. I could still see images in my head of, uh, like, I think the end scene um, where the corpses were coming coming out of the ground. Another thing that you reminded me of last time we spoke was the girl's name was Carol Ann, which was also my mother's name. And I think I kind of recall a little bit of teasing from my brother about the name. And I don't know, there was just like some weird thing stuck in my head about, I don't know, I was associating my mother with the the, the little girl getting sucked into the TV and like, you know, getting lost. And I think I probably slept with my mother and father until I was like 24, 25. They were cool with it.
0: <laughs> Poltergeist. For those of you who don't know, it came out in 1982, written by Steven Spielberg, produced by Steven Spielberg, but because of a contract stipulation from the other movie he was working on at the time, a little unknown film called E.T., he was not allowed to direct it. However, things that I've read about says he sort of kind of directed a little bit on the sly. So, Poltergeist. Terrifying movie. Um, In case you don't know, it's about a little girl who sees ghosts and they torture her. The little girl was Heather O'Rourke. She was about five years old. Now this is terrifying to me because I have a four and a half year old and I cannot imagine putting my four and a half year old in a movie, yes, where she sees ghosts and is terrified the whole time. I
1: also was really kind of surprised that it was a Spielberg production based on all of his other content that he put out during that time period.
0: You know, So I did look into that because I was very curious about that. So one of the things that I ended up reading about Spielberg was his connection to childhood, uh, which we'll get into a little bit later because you actually have a very similar connection. The more research I did, the more I found that to be true. I I don't know. I actually don't know what the reason... I haven't found anything that says why he wrote this dark story about this poor kid. What I do know is that this little girl was in the having lunch with her mom... While her sister was filming something in the MGM studios, and Spielberg was looking for a new little girl for this movie. Okay. Now, he was actually considering Drew Barrymore, who he was working with on E.T., but he saw Heather O'Rourke, he finished his lunch, and he came over to their table and said, hey, I'm making a movie, and I think you'd be great. That's why I eat lunch at cafeterias every day. Exactly. When is Spielberg coming to my cafeteria? Here's the fun thing about this. Okay, now here's where I I went deep. So I was trying to figure out the connection between E.T. and Poltergeist. They came out a week apart. They both were nominated at the Oscars. Of course, E.T. had a lot more nominations than Poltergeist. Poltergeist got three nominations. Best Original Score, Best Visual Effects, Best Sound Editing. All of it lost to E.T. But it was still a powerful movie that, once again, showing at this moment in time, Spielberg was king. It was fascinating. But again, this is your childhood. I have to ask you, what else do you remember of your childhood that wasn't poltergeist? What was the happy memory, Craig? Oh, um, God, there's a multitude.
1: I will say briefly that um, E.T., I think, was the first movie I saw in a theater when it came out. kind of remember being a little creeped out by that, too. Most, I think it was probably just the experience of being in the theater the first time and being like loud. And the beginning of it is a little like, unnerving for a child, I think. Happy memories for me for a child and, and in terms of film.
0: <laughs> film, television, it's all right. This is a safe space. <laughs>
1: we could talk about a few different things. I think one distinct thing that sticks out for me in terms of television was the TV show Alf.
0: Do you remember that? Of course I do. I lived on Alf.
1: Uh, that was on when I was in like the second grade. And I remember. The end of that school year uh we were going to be moving to another town and like I remember approaching my mom and or dad and being like I don't know if I really want to go to this new place because what if they don't have Alf on TV there <laughs> It's like the child's like like idea like you know it just shows you watch are only coming from the TV station that's in your town or whatever you know so that was uh, a character that I really uh, enjoyed another
0: wait hang on hang on we're not gonna get away from Alf okay until you tell me. If you were traumatized by the end of Alf, I don't remember seeing the final episode. How can you not have seen the final episode of Alf? It was horribly. I think I still have PTSD from the end of Alf.
1: Let me back up a second because I think. So we did move to the next town, and I think I, I do kind of remember seeing it. I know what happens now because I went back and, like, you know, read everything, all the, the multitudes of media written about Alf, uh, because clearly we weren't the only two fans. We weren't. But. We weren't. I just have the vaguest notion. Wasn't it like a two part episode?
0: It might have been.
1: I feel like I saw the first part and then this next part, like for whatever reason, I couldn't, couldn't watch it. So it remained a mystery to me for until like, yeah, I was in my mid twenties.
0: Um, for those of you who don't know, I apologize. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> Alf, in order to protect the family, whose name I don't remember. Do you remember the family name? Yeah, me neither. Alf family. I'm totally Googling it. Right. Um, uh, buh, 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 Alf. I forgot that ALF stood for alien life form. Did you know that? Oh, yeah, of course. The Tanners. (laughs) I love the dad. The dad was one of my favorite people in the show. Did he do anything else? Of course, he probably did. It was the actor named Max Wright. He was an exceptional actor. Um, Who knows? He probably went to like the Royal Shakespeare Academy and that's all we know him from is ALF. (laughs) (laughs) The end of ALF had Alf protecting the Tanners by agreeing to go with the government agents. And he gets into the van, and they drive away. What kind of weird episode was that? That was like the dinosaur show. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember how that ended? I can assume it ended with a meteor. It was a meteor, yes. They're like, oh, there's this meteor. Wait, I've gone to school. I know what that means. Ah!"
1: I may be mistaken here. But okay. I think the main head writer on that show was a heroin addict at the time.
0: <laughs> you really have to not say that when I'm taking a drink. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, good Lord.
1: <laughs> I thought that's what the, uh, the, the movie uh, Permanent Midnight was about. Wow. Well, that will be
0: on part two of the Craig interview when we find out. <laughs> heroin and elf. Don't mix. <laughs> Don't mix. We were both very connected to an actor. So unlike the movies, we were connected to a specific actor, which was the, the magnificent Canadian-born John Candy. When we last talked, and I know, again, this is kind of weird because we've already had this conversation, we went through a series of films. Now, I'm going I'm to do this series again just for our audience's sake, but I'm going to add something to it that you didn't hear before. The following films, John Candy was involved in in some way. Blues Brothers, Stripes, National Lampoon's Vacation, Splash, Armed and Dangerous, The Great Outdoors, Brewster's Millions, Little Shop of Horrors, Spaceballs, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, She's Having a Baby, Home Alone, Only the Lonely, Uncle Buck, JFK, Cool Runnings, Camp Candy, which was an animated series, which he did 40 episodes of, SCTV, and I'll stop it there. So here's what I found interesting. Originally, I asked you, what did all these movies have in common? And you, of course, knew, which was John Candy was in them in some way. He and John Hughes worked together multiple times. He loved him. And he did small parts in these movies, big parts in these movies. But here's what I found out. All of these movies came out when you and I were between the ages of 1 and 15. (laughs) Perfect. And I think that's the secret sauce about John Candy. John Candy only lived till 1994. He was 43 when he passed away. He was in almost every movie throughout our entire childhood. Like any of the big movies, he was in it in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, you're right. Whether it be like a tiny time- lampoons, right? Because he, I think he was at the park yeah. at the end, you know? The security guard. Right. The Great Outdoors with Dan Aykroyd when he was amazing. Armed and Dangerous, which is the movie I couldn't remember when he and Eugene Levy were security guards. That's
1: the one I haven't actually seen.
0: <laughs> it's ridiculous, but fantastic. You know, all the way up to Only the Lonely, which I actually still love, uh, with him being the lead romantic figure. He and this woman, they fall in love, but he's taking care of his mother, etc. And it, it's quite... I will have to see it again, because I probably haven't seen it in maybe 15 years. But I remember even as a younger guy being just genuinely moved by his performance. And Uncle Buck, which I forgot to put on our list originally, which I still think was just exceptional. Yeah, that one's one I probably
1: watched multiple times when we first got it back from the uh, the video store. That was
0: uh, those good times. John Candy died uh, March 4th, 1994. His passing was eclipsed by another famous death. Do you know who died a month later? Here's your quiz. Screen people quiz. Ready? tock. Here we go. Carol Ann? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for disturbing our listeners. No. Um, on April 5th, a month and a day later, Kurt Cobain. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, yeah,
1: I recall that distinctly. Um, and what's interesting, I think it kind of parallels, too, with the time that... Now that you uh, mentioned Kurt Cobain, like, I can date, like, put myself in that, that, that time period. So, I'd have been a freshman in high school, and that's about the time I was kind of probably not watching candy movies anymore, you know? So, he was all almost kind of starting to fade away anyways. That makes sense now, yeah, because that was all anybody was talking about for the next year or 20.
0: So, I love the fact that we ended up accidentally on a Spielberg kick with all his successes, and he had a billion of them right? He did a little movie that was called The Empire of the Sun, which was 1987. Um, It was about a boy separated from his family in Shanghai during World War II, ends up in a Japanese internment camp, deals with the loss of childhood innocence. The boy in the film was about 12 or 13, played by a very young actor named Christian Bale.
1: I think I was actually younger when I saw it then. I may have been in middle school, but yeah, I recall seeing the trailers for it on TV, and it just struck me when I first saw it. Sometime later on, we ended up acquiring a copy of the VHS. So it had to be at least a year or maybe two before it made it from film to VHS. And that's when I first saw it. I watched it a number of times and wasn't really grasping all the concepts that were happening at the time. But I think I was, they were soaking in. And if I was about 12 or 13, I was probably going through, you know, your own loss of innocence to a degree or starting to. But I think what initially hooked me was the um, the World War II thing, the aircraft. I had a a big fascination with World War II fighter planes at the time, building models and that stuff. Even had, like, you know, a bomber jacket. I would collect pieces of stuff from, you know, military surplus stores, like fighter glasses, kind of like he had, like, the green shades. Um, I think I even had, like, a a leather pilot's cap or something like that. Um, I don't know what I would do with this stuff, I mean, aside from, like, dress up in it and just like, you know, lay in my bed and look up at the sky. I don't know. But I had all this paraphernalia and I loved it, Um, which is why I initially got into the film. But watching it later on in life, like there's parts where I just weep, especially in the end where not the very end, but when he's on top of the uh, one of the structures there and the uh, planes are bombing the uh, prisoner camp that he's in, he's like cheering them on and he's freaking out. And then um, that doctor that takes care of him, that kind of adopted him, grabs him and like he's like, Jim, stop thinking. You think too much or something to that effect. And then he's calms down for a little bit and he's like, I can't remember my mother's face. That struck me really hard even then, I think. What it would be like, you know, to be separated from your parents? What would it be like to have to survive like that, to be a refugee? I think it gave me some insight and empathy that I've used for the, the rest of my life, I think.
0: I want to talk about a man who uh, played a part in your life. His name was Quentin Tarantino.
1: Yeah, man. Um, gosh, I think when I first saw uh, Pulp Fiction, that just lit my brain on fire in terms of, well, it's just so cool and edgy. Um, I hate that word now.
0: Well, think about it this way. This was 1994, so you were about 15 when this came out.
1: Right. I think I didn't see it, though, until I was a junior or senior in high school. I don't think I saw it until it was on VHS. But even before that, I wasn't really aware of it until somebody had bought the soundtrack, and each track was intercut with um, dialogue um, from the movie. So then we learned that and then imitate that to each other to entertain ourselves or use, like, quotes from the movie to reply to, like, a question from a teacher or something, like, you know, to get your friend to laugh. That's kind of what put the, the its hooks in me that way first, and I was like, this is something special this is unique this there hasn't been a movie like this yet and then watching it was just again mind-blowing like wow you can tell a story like that you can tell three or four stories in the same movie that are, may or may not be related
0: that non-linear storytelling yeah that was um that was
1: something you, you nobody had seen before at the time um at least in my <laughs> my my peer group but with that it just set off like a true love of uh film craft that I still have to this day, and there's just something about the, the way it was shot and the the vibe it had that I um, just dug, and I think it honestly kind of influenced me or influenced my taste in other film and uh, not just film, but music and uh, comic books and literature. Um, Is like if it's not doesn't have that little bit of grit, that little bit of edge, I'm not interested. At least for that, you know, um, high school to early 20s age group, you know, obviously after a while you start to soften and round out.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there's that time period when I need to see that dark moody film where everyone dies in the end and there's a slow, silent piano playing as, you know. Right. (laughs) It actually got seven Academy Award nominations. Like, think about it. This guy who was working in a video club makes like one movie, Reservoir Dogs. Then his second movie is nominated for seven Academy Awards. He wins the Palme d'Or. He wins Best Original Screenplay. It was considered a cultural phenomenon.
1: I mean, he definitely got that on merit for sure. He's like insanely like a genius, um, script writer, but it was also like that age in the nineties where a lot of directors ended up doing that to a degree. Kevin Smith's first one that comes to mind. Okay. The, the Miramax, uh, producer house. I think Saul Tarantino it was like, okay, let's go out here and scoop all the, these talented guys that aren't really coming out of arts or uh, coming out of film school. It was, a, I think it was finding out that. Those guys had made that, probably set a lot of ships a sail, the next generation. I don't know how many of them, how many other directors or screenwriters became successful from following that lead. I think Hollywood kind of uh, closed their gates after that. Like, okay, we've got enough
0: indie guys here. Moving away from the past and into the present, we're in the middle of a global pandemic, unfortunately. California is currently on fire and and things are rough. Things are tough. There's a lot of civil unrest. There's a lot of difficulties. And we've all been essentially spending all of 2020 going through this kind of a side effect of this is that we've all appreciated entertainment a lot more. I feel definitely been a way to escape. Please tell me about your experience with tales from the loop. So
1: to give your listeners a little bit of background, um, tales from the loop is kind of like stranger things, only more adult um, in terms of theme, um, themes are a lot, in each of episode are a little bit uh heavier. Um the show is a period piece. I think it takes place in the eighties or late seventies um with some sci-fi elements dropped in. Um, it's based on the artwork of a artist I really respect and admire called Simon Stålenhag. Hog, maybe. I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. Um, we apologize to all our Swedish listeners. So he paints these scenes, maybe say, you know, period, say, you know, again, like late 70s, 80s, ships just flying by with these fantastic pieces of machinery moving around them or living with them. Up into the period point where I started watching the show, I was going through some of the anxiety and um, depression that everybody's probably was going through. And this is probably like in, you know, late March, April, just kind of like trying to get your head around what the hell was going on and waking up every morning being like, shit, it was real. You know, like that wasn't a dream. And then just like trying to like get through the day and like watching your news feed, just getting more and more depressing. There was something about the bleakness of Each one of the tales that were told in um, this show that came, kind of gave me um, some comfort in a way that it was like, well, you're in this situation. You don't have a whole lot of control over it. You just got to put one foot in front of the other and move forward. Like this is what this is how it is. This is the way it's going to be. <laughs> and now you get to choose how you're going to deal with it. So it's best just to keep moving forward. Does that make any sense?
0: <laughs> it does, and that helped.
1: It did. It helped me a lot. Just the um, it took away the anxiety and the depression, but didn't really replace it with any, anything. You know what I'm saying? It's like, okay, well, we're kind of at a, a baseline here, and it was more, it was easier to uh, to move forward and actually be, you know, kind of productive and try and make things normal or. Adjust to, again, I hate this term, like the new
0: normal. It's just, you know, I don't think there's a normal any, at any given point. <laughs> sure. But we we convince ourselves that there is. Right, yeah. And I think this has definitely shaken up that that, that belief.
1: Yes, I agree. So seeing these people live in this, um, through these tales, navigating their lives through these situations, which were really, again, I keep using the word bleak and just dark. But being like, okay, well, we still got to get up and take this kid to school, despite the fact that another other one might have disappeared. We haven't seen it for 50 years because it went through a time loop, <laughs> something to that effect or like, oh crap, I travel time by accident. Still got to live life. <laughs> <You know? laughs>
0: I have to ask, is there anything that you're re-watching? Because a lot of people are finding comfort in just re-watching things, things you already know. I started
1: re-watching Cobra Kai, which was the YouTube show, which is now owned by Netflix, that I really enjoy. Again, I don't i don't find myself re-watching things, but I find me watching things that are set in either the 80s or 90s a lot. Why do you think? Some of it's just like, you know, n- nostalgia as, you know, you're getting older, I'm getting older, we're all getting older to those um time periods and seeing them through a different lens. A small part of it is just like the comfort of looking at that time period and be like, okay, well, it wasn't as crazy then maybe, but actually, if you really think about it, it probably was. You just weren't an adult then, you know, you didn't have to deal with it. You don't have to worry about like whether or not your job's going to be stable, your kid's going to get fed. You know, you're going to be able to pay your mortgage.
0: Right. Can I get more cigarettes? Will I get to drink a Zima today? Right. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just uh, that, that ability to
1: check out momentarily.
0: That's very cool. I mean, that makes sense. That makes sense to me. I think that's it, man. I think we hit it. I think we hit it hard.
1: Great. I hope this works out. I will end this episode like I ended the last one by telling you that I need to pee.
0: <laughs> you know what? I'd like to add something to that. Craig, thank you so much for being on the podcast, and I too need to pee.